the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And this week I'm bringing you Brexit Breakdown XL. For the first time ever, we've gone double wonk, two experts for the price of one. So I was joined this week by Aisha Hazarika as our special guest, Dr. Aisha Hazarika, MBE, to use her full title. She's a comedian, columnist, TV turn, and crucially for our purposes, a former advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband uh, until they kind of got dumped out of the Labour leadership in uh, 2015. She's also an author, having recently co-written Punch and Judy Politics, a book about Prime Minister's Questions, or PMQs, as we refer to it repeatedly in this podcast. And we were joined by, here's the wonks, Professor Anand Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe, and just because he was hanging around Anand's office and had nothing better to do... Professor Jonathan Portis joined in again. It was like one of those uh, episodes of Doctor Who with more than one doctor. Delighted to have as many experts as possible on the pod, to be honest. I'll be back at the end of the chat to tie things up and I'll have exciting news about the competition. So stay tuned for that. But first, a fun four-way conversation which we recorded on a Wednesday just after PMQs a couple of weeks ago. So we started by talking about that, the centrepiece of any political week. Is Brexit good for PMQs? Has it ruined it? Has it improved it? Um, Brexit has sort of just ruined everything um, at the moment, let's be quite honest. But interestingly, it has actually, two things have ruined PMQs. Brexit has absolutely ruined PMQs, but that's not the the main reason. It's the quality of the sort of oratory and political argument being promulgated by both the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition. Um, I feel like I'm quite evenly balanced, saying that they're both appalling um, at PMQs and they're equally bad. And I think they're so bad that they're the only politician that allows the other one to shine. Um, at the moment (laughs) and where the Brexit thing so so you've got two people who are not massively comfortable at the dispatch box they don't love PMQs Mm. they don't particularly put the work into it they're not you know they're not a vintage pairing in terms of great arguments great wit great moments of sort of theatre right so that's the first thing the second thing is both of them have got really difficult Brexit positions so both of them PMQs works at its best when it you know you can use PMQs to sort of advance your arguments, really like pick holes in the other person's argument, you can create a big political moment. But we have this paradox where it's the big issue of the day, but neither of them really want to get into the guts of it at PMQs because neither of them really have anywhere to go. They're both really sort of stuck in their kind of positions. I do think, though, if it was William Hague and Tony Blair, even with Brexit, it would be great. It'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, if we had better performers. What about if it was Tom Watson and Michael Gove? Well, that was fun while it lasted, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? They yeah. summed up the uh, no confidence vote. It was very, a lot very of people good. thought yeah. that would Did be you see those two? Yes, I thought they were, they were excellent. And also, I thought even Emily Thornberry at the dispatch yes. box, yeah. I think, would be, would be better. As I say, part of it is the fact that they are very lacklustre performers. I mean, yeah. if you think back to those big moments on Europe, 
with um you know blair just absolutely sort of kebabbing john major with three words you know weak 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 mm. and you know you follow you know uh, you, you follow your party i lead mine those those kind of words that really summed up the big meta political mood at the time but we we just don't have that at the moment and of course nowadays with social media it's very easy for everyone to know in a nanosecond that the door is open mind is closed came from hillary Benn. yeah 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 so his one good line which which landed quite well 30 seconds later on Twitter, you see the video of Hillary Benn singing it because someone said, this isn't Corbyn's line. So it's... It, yeah. It, it, but he repeated that line twice today. Theresa May said, you just repeat things that you don't understand. He then repeated the line that he'd said earlier as if he didn't understand it. <laughs> is, there, is there an argument that Corbyn, at least, doesn't actually understand Brexit? And that's why he's not very good at PMQs when he's talking about it because he doesn't get the detail. I have to say that what that's what strikes me is that Theresa May does get the detail and therefore... Uh, because she knows that her position is um, inconsistent with itself and she's in a big <laughs> hole, um, she comes across as being evasive to the point of dishonesty, and mm. I think that's fair. Whereas Corbyn, by contrast, as you say, comes across as though he really doesn't understand some of the fairly, what by now should be fairly basic concepts, such as the, distinct, the distinction between a customs union and the single market, for example. Um, does it matter? I mean, that, that's the thing with PMQs, is we're, we're sitting talking about it. People like us tune in every, 12, uh, every Wednesday at 12 and get very excited about it. Nobody else does. I mean, I know more people do than watch Parliament any other time of the week. Does it matter? Well, this was a central question that we wanted to explore in our book, because we are political well, I guess nerds. Well, I you've written, and the fact you've written a book about yeah, it, which but, is called, but, hang on, we haven't actually even called it, was it oh called yeah, Punch and Judy Politics? Judy politics. <laughs> uh, the fact Punch you've written a book Judy about Judy it suggests that you think it does matter. But, we, but actually, we were prepared to be quite challenged on it, because um, mm. a lot of people are saying it doesn't matter as much anymore. Even a lot of the political journalists are saying it's not what it used to be. And to be fair, it does matter less. Now, there was a time when it would always be on the news bulletins mm. in the evening, and that doesn't really happen anymore for the some of the reasons that we've we've gone through but I think it still provides a really important um, kind of strategic anvil for where both parties are going with their big political messages and their overall sort of political tactics so even though it doesn't really matter who wins or loses Mm. on a weekly basis but if you track you know PMQs and the messages across sort of parliaments you do get quite a strong direction of travel from, from where both parties are sort of going. So it kind of doesn't matter in the week to week, but I think it does provide this quite important sort of strategic framework. Often messages are tested out at PMQs at the sort of beginning of a parliament, mm-hmm. and they're actually the ones that make it through um, to the campaign. So, for example, David Cameron, when David Cameron went up against Ed Miliband, the messages that he began his outings against Ed with, you know, you, you guys crashed the economy, no one would ever trust you again, you stabbed your you know brother in the back in your room by yeah. the trade unions. They actually ended up being, that he used PMQs with George Osborne to test those messages. And then they ended up being actually quite a lot of the core messages that were used in the final mm. election campaign. I mean, what's, I mean, the problem for PMQs as well is it just gets drowned out, doesn't it? Because nowadays you have PMQs and then between then and the six o'clock news, three ministers have resigned, the government's lost five votes. And actually mm. there's so much happening yeah. that it's quite hard for it to sort of maintain its place in the headlines. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. Maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson. You'll never know. So how much time does it take in a leader's week in his preparation? Well, to do it properly, I mean, I think Corbyn probably just rocks up. (laughs) 
kind of let us like you know, we'll do like a tight out, yeah. 15 minutes prep and then let us knock it out boys but I think you know in the olden days remember it used to be twice a week it used to be yeah, on a yeah, yeah. Tuesday and a Thursday mm. and the reason Blair changed it was one of the first pledges he did in 1997 was because of the sheer amount of time because mm. whether you're preparing for an outing in the chamber which is yeah. five minutes or five hours you still actually need to do quite a lot of prep mm. so it was snarling up just days and days when, when I worked for Ed and did stuff with Gordon and for Harriet Harman it you, you were look it took about sort of two days of prep two yeah. full days of prep Cameron also put a lot of time into it as well so it was a it was a great time thief Blimey. yeah because obviously we're talking about PMQs because you were a key part of preparing Ed Miliband each week uh, you wrote his jokes fair to say <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, he delivered them <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and you worked for uh, Harriet Harman as well yeah. uh, at various times. You what was know. your best joke, Fred? Um, actually, there are two. One is credited with, uh, to my uh, writing partner, Tom Hamilton, and it was when Cameron was faffing around with trying to do stuff on the price of alcohol, and we said something like, he couldn't organise a um, piss-up in a brewery, or is there anything that the right owner, is there anything the Prime Minister... Ed could organise in a brewery so that was a good first opening but Ed also did quite a good one quite early on where he very cleverly anticipated so Cameron was doing this whole riff on how brilliant it was that they had um, produced all these new doctors and Ed had a great comeback line saying you do realise it takes seven years to train a doctor so your big success is in fact a Labour government yeah. sort of success and things like that which I thought was kind of quite good on yeah um, I mean we're talking about Ed Miliband and Harry Harman how much are they to blame for Brexit? Oh, that's a really because, good question. Because, you know, the thing is, when during that period when it was Ed Miliband and David Cameron, there was a suggestion that there wasn't enough between them. Um, the accusation is that, you know, the parties were all a bit too similar, and that's why we got Brexit. Well, that's a bit of a leap, but I do see, I see there is something in that. So I think in terms of the Ed policies, let's remember that at the time when Ed was proposing things like um, a cap on rents... Mm. Um, and things like the energy price freeze and doing stuff on land. You know, he was being accused of sort of being some Venezuelan mm. crazy sort of socialist. And then, yeah, of course, redhead. when Theresa May comes in, she basically magpies and kind of takes quite a lot mm. of his sort of policies. So I think he would argue that actually he set, um, a, 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 he had a good analysis of what was going wrong in Britain, which a lot of other people then kind of stole in fact some of his crony capitalism stuff you know predators and producers at the time were seen as all kind of mad but then sort of became kind of mm-hmm. you know wisdom kind of accepted yeah. wisdom right so there's that so i think it's not fair to say he was com- seen as completely the same at the time in westminster but what i think is true is that the public mm. saw ed Miliband, nick clegg david cameron and they all looked and sounded exactly the same mm. they all yeah. went to the same sort of they studied the same kind of subjects, they went to the same universities, they had the same cultural and political views of the world. Which is harsh on Ed, because he wasn't like those two. But I think he had quite... It was more like them than Corbyn. But that's how people saw them. That's how people saw them. That's how the public Mm. saw them. And I think there is something in that. I mean, he is is different in many, many ways, but they are part of a culture. They're part of a kind of political a very you know a kind of a golden circle mm. of people who you know have have you know this rarefied yeah. sort of world i mean even to the point you they were married similar types of women they were culturally the same and you'll remember this james when one of the big things that went massively wrong for labor is when labor and the scottish referendum did loads of stuff cross party yeah. with this better together thing mm. in scotland when i was door knocking in labor 
safe seats. People saying, you all just look, you're all the same. Yeah. You are all, yeah. the, your leaders are all the same. I mean, the irony about Ed's policy programme for me is it took the referendum for people to start to worry about what the problem was with the country. Yes, but that's... So, I mean, it was very difficult for Ed Miliband to disclaim responsibility for the policies of Blair and Brown, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, and as Aisha says, the, what came across to people was a general feeling that, that the country had been run by the that, likes of... That group. That mm. group, um, and that uh, they had left behind not just, you know, northern towns or whatever where uh, economic decline had not been reversed but also culturally that they had left behind um, actually mm. relative older people um, in you yeah. know in, in who actually were doing fairly well economically but felt that they didn't have anything culturally in common with people um, who lived in London or spent most of their time in London and didn't have a problem with uh, with immigration or globalization um, or gay marriage or the rest of it yeah it's an edit someone said something boring or illegal maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson you'll never know is Brexit funny Yes and no. It, of course, provides a kind of rich seam of comedy. Um, and uh, not so much this year, but like last year, there was just so much Brexit at the mm. Edinburgh Festival. And this year, there's still quite a lot of it about um, as well. But it, there comes a point, a bit like some of the Trump stuff as well, when stuff is just so evidently horrific, mm. then it's actually quite hard as a satirist to sort of capture it all because you can't come up with anything that's more ridiculous than what is actually yeah. happening. Um, what is your show at the moment? You... Well, I've just finished doing one. So yeah. I've just finished doing one called Girl on Girl, mm. which was all about the fight for feminism. It was about the Me Too movement and intersectionality and who owns the correct brand of feminism. It was about kind of women fighting over what the right brand of feminism was. Mm. Is there such a thing as a Tory feminist? Yes. Do you welcome them on board the feminist... Um... I think whatever it is, it's not the a bandwagon. The feminist pink bus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 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 I stand by oh, the pink bus. He's gone there. I stand oh. by. The, I wrote an entire show called Tales from the Pink Bus. I stand by it. I stand by it. It was well intentioned. It went very wrong, but I got a lot of comedy out of it, which is the main thing, basically. <laughs> Sabotage a national election <laughs> campaign to make a career as a comedian. I think we were busy. Well, I think the Edstone did that. I mean, yeah, when yeah. people are like, yeah. pink bus, I'm like, I'll raise you the, the Edstone, yeah. so back yeah. off, basically. Just back to um, is Brexit funny? Have either of you academics seen anything funny in Brexit? Do you go, do you go and watch Absolutely. Brexit shows? Do you just avoid anything to do with Brexit when you I've leave I've seen one Brexit show. Right. Is that Because uh, all my family live in Edinburgh. We go up every summer. I went to see Matt Ford at the Fringe. Ah. Was it funny? Yeah, it was. It was very funny. Okay. Very good indeed. Jonathan, what's funny about any... Brexit? But there's no, loads of things that are funny without comedians. What? Absolutely. Most things that politicians say about it. Liam Fox. Funny. Liam Fox is continually funny, <laughs> pretty much. Um, Every Brexit but, secretary is funny. You know, <laughs> tariff-free access to the single market makes me smile. But, all right, you're, you sound a bit, bit Ed miliband a bit liberal elite there. Because well, it's, it's not, not funny because the country's going to go to hell in a handcart, isn't it? How is but, that funny? But there's always, there's always kind of humour in really bad things. We're all going to be cat food in like two months' time. We're all going to be eating Winnerlock Charm and living oh, in a bunker. It's oh, all that's about, not funny. That's funny. That's funny in itself. Uh, that's just funny. Black humour, I suppose. 
Um, yeah, there's a huge amount of irony. Whether you, can, yeah. whether you think it's funny, or whether it's comic, I'm not sure, but there's an awful lot of irony. It's funny now. Might I mean, be, might not be funny in three months. You know, just now, Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that if, if Parliament doesn't do what he wants it to do, then uh, the, the Prime Minister should just close it down and stop it voting on anything. Uh, you have to say that, that, that is funny. That makes me See, that does actually make me... Geek. Laugh. Exactly. I mean, that's off the hot off the heels of right. We're now going to get the Queen to get involved and just like no. veto everything. I mean, but that's it's awful. That's terrible. That's terrible. Do you remember that Theresa May speech quite soon after Brexit, where someone replaced Brexit with uh, things about the Scottish referendum? I mean, she was talking about the Scottish yeah. referendum and why the Scots yeah. needed yeah. to stay in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Someone edited it so she was talking about Brexit, and it was a really powerful case against Brexit. I mean, things like that are just genius. I also really, loved the really moment funny. when one of the Brexit secretaries, I forget because there have been so many, was in one of the select committee hearings and they were like, have you been to Northern Ireland? And he just totally styled out. He was like, I have been to Dublin. And it was like, wow, <laughs> that is the level of competence we are dealing with now. That is really quite amazing. Or Dominic Raven and uh, Dover. Oh, yeah. Right. That's yeah. priceless. Yeah. yeah. That's Basically, yeah. people that got, you just need to right. change. I thought your... I had a black sense of humour. You people got very dark sense of humour. You've got to just change your mindset. You've got to go dark. I would actually say that you know, for quite a long time now, you know, politics and comedy has sort of like swirled around each other. I mean, the, the thick of it was such an mm. important um, cultural product for politics because it was like a fly in the wall documentary about what was happening in the background of politics. It was not about the conspiracy theories it was generally the everyday cock-up of mm -hmm. what really happens yeah. in and behind the scenes in government departments and, and party sort of hqs but there are other things which i think so from the thick of it i remember when for me there's quite a big moment where i remember um one of the really big Aus osborne budgets that unraveled i think it was mm. the pasty tax mm. and, yes, the granny the granny tax. Tax and the caravan and we tax. put mm. the word omnishambles into ed Miliband's speech obviously from the thick of yeah. it was a month mm. and then that just you know i think tim shipman had used it in one of his pieces and we put it in and then suddenly you had the, the lexicon from the thick of it mm. in hansard now it was the and that's, yeah and that's what yeah. it became known as so if if you haven't recently done so go back and watch the, the last episode of yes minister which mm -hmm. is the last one. The last one is where it's it's not the last episode of the whole thing. Yeah. It's where he becomes goes yeah. from being minister uh, okay. to being prime minister. So, um, uh, uh, Dean Hacker's elevation from being minister to prime minister is the result of a crisis with Brussels. Um, ah. It's called the Euro sausage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the As opposed to the vegan sausage. The bureaucrats want to, oh, to okay. ban the Great British Banger and relabel it as, oh. as the uh, um, preserved processed meat products. Um, and Jim with the. Sir Humphrey and Jim together. Yeah. This is happening at the same time as a leadership crisis in the party, which yeah. is the party it is that, that Jim. Um, and uh, Jim saves the day um, by colluding with the European Commissioner in question. So, of course, the Commissioner has to make this threat and then be seen to be humiliated by Hacker, yet still winning. Everybody wins, basically. The Europeans win, Jim wins, Sir Humphrey wins, and he succeeds in stabbing both of his two leadership rivals in the back as a consequence. And you, you just watch it and you think, you know, this could have been written yeah. with a whole Brexit wow. crisis. Well, absolutely. I once had a Lib Dem come to me with a serious story about the <coughs> danger to Cumberland sausages. Posed by Brexit. I mean, I, no, I wonder if you're just taking the mickey, testing my knowledge of Yes Minister. But uh, were you in the thick of it? As in, were you a character? I'm not sure. I did meet a 
female actress who played um, the female special advisor to Rebecca yeah. Front, and she said that my name had come up once in a, in a kind it. of a, a, mm. in a rehearsal, and yeah. I thought that was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I was really over. I was really. I was like, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was a horrific character, so you know, I was probably being slagged <laughs> off massively. Wow. <laughs> um, you are uh, a busy person. You write columns. You go on telly. Um, as I've noted down here, you're often seen in the company of Ian Dale, Tim Montgomery, <laughs> Tom Newton Dunn. Uh, are you a red Tory? <laughs> oh, or of is this oh, all oh. about? Is this you know a lovely post Brexit thing of we need to talk across party lines, and that has been lost post Brexit. Well, to your first question, when you say post Brexit, all oh, right, Brexit hasn't happened yet. Post referendum, oh, never be post Brexit. Probably we're in post referendum um, politics. I've existential about that crisis forever. So on your first thing, am I a red Tory? There's a whole section of sort of Corbyn fans who, of course, I'm red Tory scum, and you know that's my rightful place. So I kind of banked that. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm joking about that. That's probably actually. No, that's true. Not nice for you, because no, you probably it's... do get accused of that in oh, quite yes. an unpleasant way. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I've now I apologise, to... no, I withdraw. No, 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 not at all, not at all. I've got very thick skin about it. But that is an actual label that mm. gets put upon me. So that's the... F- but but your second point is absolutely um, right, which is I think it is really, really important in these very divisive, horrendously sort of tribal echo chamber times. I think it really is important mm. to do stuff with people who you um, disagree with and to have be able to debate things in a way which is spirited and robust but with a sense of humour and not killing each other at, at the end of it. So I think it's, I'm really proud, I mean I get a lot of grief for those um, things that I do in some, you know, like also part of it is who you get paired with, you know, TV producers and radio producers tend to put, you know, they tend to put kind of opposite people on. It's mm. quite unusual for me to be on with somebody yeah. like, you know, Owen sure. Jones. or the, Actually, when we have been on, we've, we've clashed about quite a lot of things, mainly to do with old labour and new labour and where we are now and everything like that. But I do think it's important to talk to other people. And I do this um, show on CNN with two Brexiteers, Ian Dale and um, Liam Halligan. And we... I really enjoy the show because we get to talk about a lot of international stuff, but we have very fundamentally different views on things, mm. but we're able to discuss them in a way which is is pretty lively, but it doesn't tend to get too aggressive unless it's Brexit, where sometimes mm. we do kick off and almost punch each other in the face. You see, I don't know, maybe you experts will come in on this. You know, Anna knows this is one of my hobby horses, is that Brexit has left... I think uh, there's a lack of ability to agree on the basics and I would suggest Liam Halligan might fall into that category and that some of the things he claims about economics wouldn't necessarily stand up to academic challenge um, and if you can't agree on the very basics then that's a problem is that fair? I mean I did a podcast with Liam uh, a year or so ago uh, and uh, actually we, we did manage to have yeah. a fair amount of common ground on the economics uh you know there i think you know often with economists it's just that you know actually the differences aren't um about 
what the economics says. Sometimes they are, but with the with the sort of saner economist, the differences aren't about what the economists say, but about the political economy. Yeah. I mean, they sort yeah. of they're saying that you know if we leave the EU, we could do X, Y, and Z on my particular subject, immigration. Yeah. They say, well, you know, we can leave the EU, and that will enable us because we'll have control. Well, you know, because we'll have control, and now we don't have control. Of course, we can have a better policy. Why would we have a worse policy after leaving the EU with more control than we do now? And well, the answer is actually because on, on almost any politi conce politically conceivable state of the world, we will end free movement, which actually most of these people agree like, mm. has been broadly good, and we will have a system which, on balance, will be less good for the UK as a consequence. Um, and they'll they'll say, but we doesn't have to be that way. And I'll say, well, you know. Um, that is actually the way that uh, the political economy of the UK is likely to work in practice. And the same thing is true, you know, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg will say, well, we could have, uni and, and Patrick Minford will say, we'll have, we could have unilateral free trade. But and actually, most economists will say, yeah, on balance, overall, unilateral free trade might be very painful in some respects, but probably would lead to higher GDP per capita than, than, than our current situation. But it ain't gonna happen. It's fantasy. You, you guys, as those pesky S experts, I mean, you obviously talk a lot to the to the Labour Party. You probably have more contact with the, the leadership of the Labour Party than I do. How do you feel about the narrative that keeps getting put forward by the leadership of the Labour Party, saying we can negotiate a totally different Brexit? Does that come under the category of being a lie, or is it a failure of understanding? As you alluded to at the beginning of this podcast well, what do you what's what's your analysis of that i don't think it's a lie because it's not about something that has happened but yeah. it's a it's a massively implausible claim at best um, uh, it depends which version you listen to we okay. could do a different sort of deal with the european union sure absolutely you could you could do a, a norway you could do all sorts of things we could do a deal where we're in a customs relationship and have a say over eu trade deals no you absolutely couldn't because whilst you know, you can't say it's a hundred percent because it's something in the future. I just find it inconceivable, and I think anyone who knows the European Union and the fact of the fact that its treaties say this is impossible will realise that the EU would never possibly give that. So, so why do you think they keep saying it? Well, because they're in opposition, and it makes it sound like they've got a better alternative to the people outside of this bubble who are listening to them. Yeah. I imagine that your your average voter will hear. Mrs May's doing a Tory Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn thinks it's rubbish but could do a better one and the, the calculation is if we go out on Mrs May's terms and it does lead to certain negative economic impacts, which it will, not quite as extreme as mm. people might say, it puts Corbyn in rather a good position. I think that's the calculation. I mean it makes sense to me politically. I think it just doesn't make sense to people who think Brexit is the most important issue and Trump's party politics so Corbyn should stop it. I think that's where yeah. the difference is. Yeah, um, yeah you know, could Labour or another constellation of, of forces negotiate a different Brexit, yes. Could it negotiate a better Brexit? Well, from certainly from an economic point of view, yes. Um, Barnier said, uh, um, as he said all along, that if the UK's red line change, um, then the EU will be prepared to negotiate a different relationship. Um, it's too late at this point you can argue about whether it might have been that this might have been different had we done behaved differently over the last 18 months. Too late at this point not to have some form of backstop or a withdrawal agreement currently along along lines. But could you have a very different relationship going forward if you had um, 
not necessarily Jeremy Corbyn, but you know, Keir Starmer or Philip Hammond or you know, negotiating, mm-hmm. would, could you yeah. and would you have a quite a different type of relationship that on balance would yeah. probably be more beneficial economically? Would it like, look precisely like some of the words that Jeremy Corbyn has used? No, it wouldn't, because as Anand said, some of the things that Corbyn has said are either not going to happen or simply don't make sense in their own terms. But the sort of basic thrust of what Labour is saying, which is you know, a strong single market relationship, mm-hmm. if it means anything, is either meaningless waffle, but if it means anything, it means a significantly softer Brexit where we remain, re- remain in considerably closer alignment than we are likely to get under this. But the reason they use waffle there is quite obvious, because they really don't want to say we're going to accept freedom of movement. Yes. Well, this is amazing, because it sets up Brexit family fortune. It's Brexit Family Fortunes, and here is your host, James Miller. This is where we ask you to anticipate percentages of people. It's basically like Family Fortunes, right? We asked 100 people a question, how many said this answer except on Brexit? Hmm. Because it's based on the work of the UK to change your Brexit policy panel. But this week, we're working from the stats that were revealed in the Brexit and public opinion, is that what it's called? That's it, what it's called. Uh, yeah. Event uh, held this week. And the first question is about Labour. How many of 100 people, if asked, is the Labour policy on Brexit clear? How many said, yes, Labour has a clear policy on Brexit? 30%. 30 says Aisha. It's Anand's game. He really ought to know these. Stuff. I know this is really embarrassing. Yeah, Twenty-five. You're both wrong. Uh, where are we going? Fifteen. Yeah, I'll take that. Eleven percent wow. say that Labour has a clear Brexit policy. Seventy-one wow. percent say it's unclear. Amazingly, there's however many that leaves don't know if it's clear <laughs> or unclear. Come on, yeah. binary question. Like, come yeah. on. Uh, and a little treat courtesy. I don't know. I don't understand them. Uh, <laughs> question two this week, courtesy of. Uh, Matthew Goodwin how many uh, what percentage of Remainers would mind if a close relative married a Lever 70 70% of leave of Remainers would mind if a close relative married a Lever you're saying Nisha uh, I think about 50% 50 50 37% only 30 so no, that's quite you've, you've gone very yeah. high <coughs> I thought I saw a tweet where he said Remainers are very yeah. liberal. Uh, the flip side was that 9% of leavers would mind if oh, okay. so uh, a relative married a Remainer. So the leavers are all very liberal when More it comes tolerant. to the Remainers. Yeah, I like that. Or they just won. I mean, they didn't <laughs> win, to be fair, didn't they? Um, let's finish with, um, what's it called, Anand? In, uh, the in the unlikely event, event that this podcast hasn't proven sufficiently enlightening. I think it's... Oh, How can it end sufficiently? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that's not enlightened you sufficiently. Sufficiently, that's what it is. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Uh, recommendations. How to understand Brexit. Um, let's start with you, Aisha. What have you got for us? So I would say it's a bit like... It's a bit like changing your broadband. 
Oof. It's basically a whole load of hassle and admin, yeah. and then people come around to do the cables, and they're like, no, actually, that's not my responsibility, that's someone else's. So you go through all this nightmare thing, and then you end up with something which is basically as crap as what you had with yeah. in the start in the first place, that your neighbours have got better speeds than you now. That's my analogy for Brexit. Okay, uh, so the... She can't recommend her own analogy. That's, yeah, you that's can. What you're recommending is changing your broadband, and then like you'll know what Brexit's like. Exactly. Anyone that's had to change a broadband, oh, it's, like a it's, isn't it? It's a nightmare. And you just end up with something which is as rubbish as what you started it's with. And you're ugly. like, oh, why did I bother in the first place? Yeah, or don't bother. Like, oh, exactly. Oh, no, you know, having said that, having just been through that yesterday, but you don't want to hear about my changing broadband. Because um, it, it wasn't very interesting. Down straight, we don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was quite straightforward. Anand, what have you got for us? Well, I have to say this, though. Our report yesterday is fab. Oh, you're not it's allowed to recommend your own stuff. You know that. It is that has been a rule for a long time. You're not allowed to recommend your own stuff. Everyone loves it and they love it because it's great. Download it and read it. Ring me up, I'll send you a copy. I knew this was happening. Well, you I'm came, sorry. You came with two different. recommendations to the last podcast. And I was like, <laughs> he's a fool. He should have kept one for the next episode. <laughs> no, and sure enough, you turn up and you've got one this No, no, I had others in my mind, but that report is so damn good. You're not allowed to recommend your own stuff. Why? Because that's a rule. I made it. It's my podcast. It's not my own stuff. It's other people's stuff. Mm, all right, I'll let you have this time. Since all you right. brought two last time, yeah, all you right. can have that this time. Um, Jonathan, you're not you. You just happened to have dropped in, so I don't know if you've got any recommendations for understanding. Did Brexit. I have a recommendation last time? I forgot. Yeah, I can't remember what it was though. You recommend you've recommended the last episode of uh, Yes Minister. Oh, I think yeah, that's, that's a pretty good, good. recommendation. Yeah, we'll recommend have that. Yeah, yeah, we'll have that. Absolutely. That wins. <laughs> So that was Aisha Hazarika, Anan Menon and Jonathan Portes and me. I quite liked having more folk in the conversation. I might try to scoop up some more stray wonks for further episodes. We'll see how that works out. I thought we covered some good ground there. PMQs, is Brexit funny or frightening or both? Is Jeremy Corbyn thick or a fibber or both? Uh, a bit of feminism and... Any chat is improved by the addition of some Yes Minister, I would say. That is an excellent recommendation from Jonathan Porters. Now, in the name of admin, I must update you on the competition. Yes, the competition to find the link between family fortunes and Brexit. A couple of particularly notable entries to draw your attention to. I haven't really been mentioning entries on recent episodes so I'm sort of catching up here a bit uh, a man who goes by the name of Bookham Dano I think because his name is Dan on Twitter suggested it was to do with a contestant on Family Fortunes who just said turkey to every answer during the big money round I don't really remember how the big money round worked but I'm guessing you weren't supposed to say turkey to every answer uh, he thought turkey could be the link because what with the Brexiteers telling lies about Turkey during the referendum campaign. But uh, he's wrong, but I like the thinking. He's also got the wrong host of Family Fortunes there. That was in the Max Bygraves era, apparently. Other hosts were Bob Monkhouse and Les Dennis. And Bob Monkhouse pops up in another uh, attempt at winning the competition, which came from a man called Alan Drake. He guessed that the link was that Bob Monkhouse once made a saucy remark to Anna Soubry when she was on Celebrity Squares. This was true, apparently. Um, and he was the presenter of Celebrity Squares, which is close, but wrong. Um, so I will give you a hint on this. Bob, Mon He's right on the Bob Monkhouse front. Bob Monkhouse is part of the link. That is uh, correct. The correct Family Fortunes presenter. 
But the link isn't to Anna Subri. The link is with a prominent lever, a really prominent lever, rather than a remainer. So I'll leave that with you. Uh, if no one gets it in the next few weeks, I'll reveal a further clue and we'll see if anyone can get a correct answer before the end of this series of podcasts. I think we're about halfway through as it stands. If you've got an idea what the answer is, or if you want to get in touch about anything else, really, I am on at Political Yeti on Twitter or UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com on the email. Or you can go to my website, which is james-miller.com. That's got a list of all the recommendations on it and you can contact me through that as well. Or you can contact the UK and a Changing Europe direct via their website, which is ukandeu.ac.uk, and you'll find all the previous episodes of this podcast there. Or you can tweet them at ukandeu. I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, the music this week has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra, and this has been... The Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for another episode. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.